So to start, you've been in this role for two years now. So what were some of your initial goals coming to the job and how do you feel like you've done on them so far? Thanks for the question. So my initial goal, as in the case of when you enter any new leadership role, is to meet people, to listen, to learn the lay of the land. Again, as you know, I was a student here and so I was never in Nassau Hall as a student. Um, and in this current role, I'm in Nassau Hall most of the time. And so in a way, I'm at Princeton in a different seat around the table. And so I wanted to understand that new kind of orientation I have on campus and to the lives of people here at Princeton. Uh, and after talking with people and building relationships, it gave me an opportunity to develop a certain set of priorities that I have uh, in this office of the Dean of the Faculty and in my role as a Dean who oversees not only uh, the administration of this office, but also the ways in which we work with chairs and directors of academic departments, programs, institutes, and centers. And I was able, uh, by the end of my first year, to establish four major priorities. The first is academic excellence, and so ensuring that we can sustain or enhance the academic quality of our departments. Uh, the second priority is diversity and inclusion, so ensuring that we have a diverse array of, of ideas um, and uh, perspectives in order to produce and advance academic knowledge. Uh, the, the third uh, issue, uh, the third priority is compliance, and so ensuring that faculty, as they proceed uh, in their academic work, that they are complying with the various regulations or guidelines that exist uh, at the university. And then the last priority is modernizing the Office of the Dean of the Faculty. And so we have peer offices in the Ivy League system, and I want to make sure that we are updating our policies, that we're updating our software or technological platforms, and we're updating the ways in which we try to support uh, our faculty, but also the academic professionals uh, who are appointed by our office, which includes um, researchers and, and, and others. So I want to start with your second goal about diversifying the faculty. The 2022 DEI report showed that around 69% of tenured or tenure track faculty are white. And then in his interview with the Prince last fall, President Icegruber said that university is subject to certain legal limits when it comes to diversifying the faculty, that like you can't really consider race when making those types of decisions. But he also said that he wants to increase the number of underrepresented minorities on the faculty by 50% in the next five years. So is that a tenable goal, and how can, how can the university achieve that goal while working within the limits of the law? Mm -hmm. So that was a goal that was outlined before my time. I will say that I'm, as someone who prizes uh, diversity of perspectives and ideas, I'm all for thinking about ways we can diversify our faculty community. And so what I have done is I've uh, appointed a new leader his name is Professor Fred Wary. He's of the Department of Sociology. He's the Vice Dean for Diversity and Inclusion. And he has uh, been proactive in engaging with faculty, with chairs and directors about how they conduct searches. And so departments have search officers, they have faculty who participate on search committees, just ensuring that we are thinking in a um, holistic or in a kind of open-minded way about how we build an applicant pool that enables us to identify the talent that we need um, uh, around the world. Um, he's also enabled us to um, ensure that how we 
characterize our academic mission in searches, like search descriptions and the like, and also um, how we are establishing um, relationships with people, not only within on campus, but beyond campus. All of those things are driving toward our ability to recruit faculty of a high academic quality, but also who bring a variety of perspectives. And so in my view, I think it's most important to establish that kind of groundwork of procedures, of um, uh, kind of a philosophical approach that central to the advancement of knowledge uh, is excellence, intellectual excellence, and central to that is ensuring that you have a wide array of ideas. Now, I intend not to view uh, our success only in terms of metrics. I know that that was um, uh, you know, uh, the language used in the past. I am confident that after this current year, we will have a great story to tell, and we've uh, established a new website on the Office Dean of the Faculty where we're improving our storytelling and also highlighting the stories of our faculty from a variety of backgrounds who have been contributing to our educational mission. And so uh, I'm inclined to say that we are recruiting people to Princeton, people who have left are coming back, and I think that uh, Princeton itself is one of the best places to be a, an academic teacher and, and researcher. I'm interested in you mentioning Professor Weary, who I've actually interviewed for the Princeton Cast, because when you were at Boston University and you led the task force on faculty diversity and inclusion, you made a similar move and you made a recommendation that said the university should appoint an associate provost for faculty diversity and inclusion. Given that Princeton has an entire office of diversity and inclusion, how important do you think are those types of administrative structures can be in achieving these types of goals? And are there ever concerns that too large of an administrative body can actually slow down the pace of change? Mm, that's a great question. So when I was at Boston University, I was um, a co-leader of a task force on diversity and inclusion, as you say. And that task force uh, consisted of a wide range of faculty and administrators uh, from across the multiple campuses of Boston University. And so we had not only a College of Arts and Science, but we had a School of Business, we had a medical school, we had um, you know, the, the College of Fine Arts, and so it was a very complex environment. And I think that experience was useful to me because it gave me a chance to understand how different professional populations understood the notion of diversity, how they understood academic excellence, and how we could work together to advance the mission of the university with respect to identifying and cultivating uh, talent. When I made that recommendation along with my colleagues there, the, the, the idea is to have a thought leader, right? Someone who is the locus of conversations, someone who is a generative thinker, someone who is an expansive communicator to reach out to the various uh, people and constituencies we have at the university, but also beyond the university. Prior to hiring, um, or recruiting Fred Wary, uh, I imagine that this is something that I would have done as dean of the faculty, but given the nature of my portfolio, there are a lot of things uh, I need to do. And so I think uh, by recruiting Professor Wary, he's able to be an extension of the dean of the faculty. Uh, he enables us to be even uh, more strategic than we have been in the past in developing uh, priorities and updating our guidelines. He's someone who is a remarkable interlocutor between the Office of the Dean of the Faculty and Nassau Hall with faculty, with students and other, and staff on, on campus. 
And also having a, a leadership role enables you to establish a set of priorities that could last a very long time, such that you're not working on these issues, as they say, on the corner of your desk. Fred Wary has his own desk. This is something that he's committed much of his time to. And I think it's helpful, if I may say finally, having someone with fresh ideas in our community. So that is to say, you know, I have the ideas that I brought from Boston University. These are the kinds of ideas, if I may, that um, bode well for my time here as a leader. But I'll also say that identifying someone who has uh, his own perspective in Fred Wary and someone who can bring energy and a kind of panoramic view of campus, I think that is useful as well. And so I look forward to identifying those kinds of opportunities for our faculty. I'm going to shift to tenure, which is I know is a big part of your portfolio. Uh, after Professor Eric Long was denied tenure in 2022, a group of over 300 students and faculty wrote an open letter to the university protesting that decision. Among the complaints raised in the letter was, was a lack of transparency regarding the process of granting tenure, and another was that scholars in the humanities fields were being overlooked for tenure. Have there been efforts to increase the types of scholarships represented in, by tenured faculty, and is there room for the university to increase transparency around these types of decisions? Thanks for that. Uh, so I'll say, first of all, that guidelines for what's called the um, appointment and advancement of faculty is in rules and procedures of the faculty. That is a public document. Anyone can Google it. It's available on the uh, website of the Office of the Dean of the Faculty. And so we don't hide that. And that document lays out the scope of uh, uh, efforts that would be made by academic departments in appointing, reappointing, tenuring, and promoting faculty. Uh, the next thing that I've done over this past academic year is I've worked with chairs and directors across the university to update their tenure and promotion policies and procedures. You know, some policies have not been updated in a long time, and I'm pleased to say that um, the majority of departments now have updated policies and procedures, and that includes provisions for ensuring that information is circulated to faculty in a timely way, and it also includes provisions for clear procedural steps on how faculty uh, can make progress in their careers. And all members of the faculty community within departments were part of that conversation. That was a presumption because these policies had to be approved at the department level before they're submitted to our office. Um, I will say that our, in terms of the kinds of faculty we recruit, um, departments have, play a central role in identifying the the excellent uh, faculty, the diverse faculty who exist in the academic field, and we are in conversations with them about ensuring that they're able to recruit that talent, but also to uh, retain that talent. It is our view that departments, particularly as we've been working with Professor Wary and with uh, Deputy Dean Tony Toronto in my office, to ensure that departments are have a kind of um, an open mind to the kinds of applicants uh, they're willing to recruit. I think that has, that has been a beneficial approach that we've taken to faculty recruitment. I know that's been the case here at Princeton uh, in the past, but I think uh, even more so moving forward, given a number of the uh, new people and structures that we've established uh, in uh, the Office of the Dean of the Faculty. You mentioned that a lot of departments have updated their policies around this process. What types of changes have they made? Well, uh, you know, these it, it, it depends. Uh, some uh, policies were 
uh, being updated and they were five years old, some were older than that. Uh, it, Princeton is a, a university of remarkable antiquity, if I may put it that way. And so, uh, you know, we don't have that, the, that exact data, but I think the last collective update to policies and procedures was uh, in 2008. And so uh, we've had an opportunity now to uh, engage in a conversation with departments about what are the kinds of things that we um, should focus on uh, so that uh, faculty are in the best position to succeed. And that can include ensuring that they have proper mentorship. It can include their opportunities to receive feedback on the progress that they're making uh, towards tenure or, and, and promotion. And it also it ensures that departments are able to gather the intelligence from the broader academic field in systematic and um, consistent ways. And so just ensuring that we had alignment of being systematic and consistent across the academic units and ensuring that uh, all of us within respective departments were engaged in this process of updating policies and procedures, I think that that is something that uh, may not make a headline uh, in a newspaper, but I think it would be, it's beneficial long-term to our university. Some people speculated at the time that Huang was denied tenure because there's like a declining interest in the humanities. That's something that's been both at Princeton where students in engineering outnumber students in humanities by two to one, and also we've seen this as like a more national trend. Um, and at the same time, Ice Gruber has named rebuilding and fortifying the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences as like a top priority for the next few years. So I'm wondering how this focus in terms of hiring faculty in the midst of the declining interest in the humanities will work. Like, how do you continue to plan on attracting faculty to the humanities, and also at the same time, how are you thinking about these emerging technologies and attracting faculty with expertise in that area? The School of Engineering and Applied Science is a high priority for the university, and rightfully so. That is something been stated by President Eisgruber, and I support that priority. There is great interest in the humanities at Princeton and at many institutions of higher education. The question is, how do you measure that uh, interest? So uh, people tend to focus on the number of majors, but you should also examine the extent to which uh, students are taking classes in the humanities. And so the enrollments in the humanities are actually at its highest rate, if not one of the highest rates uh, over the past several years. Uh, it's a, an opportunity for students and faculty to uh, not only engage in humanistic ideas, but to think about the relationship of the humanities to uh, disciplines outside of humanities. And so we do find that there is great synergy among faculty uh, in the social sciences, as well as the natural sciences and in engineering, along with the humanities. And so you have colleagues like Naomi Leonard, who does work on engineering and the arts, or you have uh, Judith Hamera in the Lewis Center for the Arts who has been engaging with faculty across divisions. I should say that uh, I am a humanist as they say, quote unquote. I'm a professor in the English department so uh, the humanities does mean a lot to me and I've been working with uh, humanities chairs and, and directors to, to think about the well-being, the academic well-being of the humanities at the university and President Eisgruber has been supportive of me in making that one of my priorities. Um, shifting gears a little bit, President Eisgruber has placed an emphasis on institutional neutrality, and at the same time, a lot of Princeton professors have 
made waves by speaking out about controversial issues. To name a few examples, Professor Michael Flowers publicly condemned former Professor Joshua Katz. Aspia Dean Amani Jamal took a position after the verdict of Kyle Rittenhouse. And the head of the English department, Jeff Dolan, released a statement on anti-racism in 2020, but then declined to issue a statement on, on anti-Semitism more recently. So I'm interested in how you think about this difference and how faculty have a role of speaking out about issues that aren't necessarily their, their subject field in a world of institutional restraint. So to what extent do you think institutional restraint should apply to faculty speaking out about these issues? Uh, faculty have uh, opportunities to express their ideas freely at Princeton. And Princeton has been one of the leading institutions in encouraging faculty to speak freely. Uh, faculty also have great opportunities to pursue their, their line of academic work. And so this is the kind of environment where ideas can be exchanged and it's the kind of environment where faculty, in my view, are able to state positions, either some that may be perceived as normative but, or others that are perceived as uh, controversial. Um, we've had a faculty advisory committee on policy that has been examining the role of academic units in uh, issuing statements and the implications for faculty governance. That has been a year-long effort that has been uh, you know, established by President Eisgruber, and there will be key developments there. So I would, I would defer to the outcome or the announcement of those efforts, um, but I should say that Princeton, of all the universities uh, that may be regarded uh, as its peers, that Princeton's one of the ideal places to express uh, a variety of ideas in order to uh, advance uh, academic knowledge, but also to identify ways in which we agree or disagree in the best interest of uh, intellectual exchange. So the class of 2026, of which I am a member, is the largest in university history, and the university plans to continue to grow with its undergraduate population. And as a result of that, this year, some popular first-year classes have been full or have not had enough seats, and some faculty have reported feeling strained due to their increased class sizes. So what are you doing to try to hire faculty at a rate that matches student expansion so that more classes don't end up being taught by lecturers or postdocs or overflowing? And how are you attempting to ensure that this effort doesn't decrease faculty quality or lead to an imbalance between departments? So regarding the very details of um, uh, the expansion of the student undergraduate student community, I would defer to... Uh, the Dean of the College, uh, Joel Dolan, but also Vice President Rochelle uh, Calhoun. Um, I, I will say that there are universities across the country, particularly those that are popular, that enjoy great interest among students. Students who decide to, uh, in this case, come to Princeton, um, and, uh, and we could yield at a very high rate. And so, of course, um, in any one year, you, there are fluctuations in the overall campus population size. Uh, in my view, uh, what we've been trying to focus on, particularly at the academic unit level, is what are the strategic intellectual priorities of, of that department with respect to research, um, but we also account for mounting the curriculum. And so in that respect, we do want to make sure that uh, we have the kinds of excellent uh, faculty, and that, else, that does include uh, lecturers, to engage students. I should remark that we have uh, some of the most outstanding instructors on campus uh, who are lecturers, and there are lecturers, senior lecturers, and university lecturers. We also have professors of a practice, not only assistant, associate, and full professors. So that constellation of faculty with different backgrounds enable us to establish an educational mission 
um, and to meet students where they are. So in my view, I think we are well prepared to handle the increased interest that comes from students who come to Princeton, but also the strategic initiative of the university to expand the uh, undergraduate class. And I, and I would say that uh, with the leadership of the Dean of the School of Engineering and Applied Science, Andrea Goldsmith, who has been um, you know, key to building the faculty in the School of Engineering, uh, where we have many computer science majors, and in partnership with uh, the new provost, uh, Jen Rexford, I believe we're going to establish the foundation of resources to recruit faculty, but also to ensure that the students are able to get the kind of education that we're expecting yeah. when they arrive. As departments are growing as a result of the student body growing, are they all growing at similar rates, or are some being focused on more than others, or being asked to grow more than others? Well, uh, it, it, I will say that you know, we handle questions about growth on a year-to-year -year basis, and so uh, some departments may decide uh, not to hold any faculty searches at all because I think they've reached some uh, kind of um, stability in terms of their size and, and, and they're comfortable with that size. And then we do have occasions where departments are thinking about either um, replenishing certain academic disciplines or building uh, in new areas. And so it very, you have to look at on a case by case basis, but uh, in my view, um, I would say that certainly computer science has been a, a popular field where uh, we're doing our best to ensure that students have the kind of um, instructional support uh, that they need. But you know, because we have upward of 30 to 40 departments that are thinking about how they wish to um, uh, recruit faculty in the years ahead, uh, there's no one-size-fits-all kind of uh, analysis. In the wake of the university removing Woodrow Wilson's name from the School of Public and International Affairs, there were calls from students for the administration to introduce anti-racism training for all faculty. Do you see a future where such a policy might be implemented, and are there any possible alternatives to that? So, um, my sense is that, uh, you know, I can't comment on the, um, the uh, concerns expressed by uh, students, uh, and that may have been before my time when I arrived at uh, Princeton. But I will say that we uh, have been uh, working uh, diligently through the new leadership of Professor Fred Wary to uh, engage with department chairs on how they can foster an environment of inclusivity and also to ensure that faculty are understanding of how students have been evolving in their interests and also in terms of their backgrounds. And so in my view, um, I think that we're on the very front end of that. And I think that the kinds of ways that faculty can be acquainted with uh, certain policies at the university that encourage um, free expression, that's something that we're working on. That is to say, ex free expression in the classroom. That's something that we're working on through Professor Wary in our office. And, and so whereas it's characterized here as, I think you said, anti-racism yeah. trained, we might not necessarily adopt that terminology, but we are thinking about how to ensure that faculty are able to engage students in appropriate ways at our moment in time. Do you think there is a role in this process for some sort of mandatory training or orientation for faculty so that students coming into any class have some like level of feeling that their faculty has undergone some sort of training? Mm -hmm. uh, we do have, a, a, so I meet with new faculty um, uh, every year, particularly in the, as we enter the fall semester, 
Uh, and so I meet with them through the McGraw Center uh, where they have um, sessions for new faculty to understand uh, approaches to pedagogy or and also how to engage with students here at Princeton. I also meet with uh, new faculty um, in a luncheon uh, in the fall uh, to talk about uh, their opportunities for uh, ad advancement here at the university. So there are a number of touch points that we have to interact with our new faculty to orient them to Princeton. So now I want to shift to a different type of faculty that we haven't really been talking about yet. Both at Princeton and nationally, postdoctoral researchers have been voicing concerns about low wages and mistreatment from some administrators and professors. Nationally, we've seen a growing movement by postdocs and other non-tenure track faculty to unionize. How do you think these trends bode for the future of academia, and how do institutions such as Princeton continue attracting talented researchers amidst a growing concern about job security and making a livable wage? Mm -hmm. Well, I can only comment on what we've been able to do here at Princeton. Uh, a few months ago, we had established a new floor for postdoc salaries, and uh, that was crucial because that new floor recognizes the contributions that postdocs make to the Princeton University community, and it also identifies uh, the ways in which uh, we want postdoctoral researchers to excel in their professional careers. Uh, the new floor that we established of 65000 a year is among the highest in uh, the country. Uh, in fact, uh, there, we were among the first to reach that level. And in a way, I think uh, Princeton came forward uh, in a positive light in the same way that we came forward positively when we uh, increased the graduate student stipend. And so Princeton has been uh, one of the leading institutions with respect to supporting uh, postdoctoral researchers and recognizing their contributions to higher education and also ensuring that they're in the best position to succeed professionally. What type of effect do you think it has on the institution or maybe relationships among colleagues when you have a group of employees such as the postdocs who are so publicly talking about their working conditions and asking for a raise? I think uh, anyone uh, at Princeton is entitled to express their ideas and so postdocs Doing so is not unusual. Uh, I, we welcome uh, the uh, ideas that they have about how they can improve their conditions at the university. In fact, we have uh, Alice Sinaris in our office. She is Senior Assistant Dean for Postdoctoral Affairs. That is a new position that we established over this past academic year to meet postdocs where they are. And she meets with uh, postdocs regularly and she also has been working to establish a number of structures such that they can have uh, a productive experience here at the university. I should say that postdocs are not students, they are employees, and so our goal is to continue to think about them in the matrix of how they can excel professionally and how they can uh, advance knowledge through research. I have one final question. Um, and we touched on this a little bit at the very beginning of the interview, but I wanted to come back to it because you mentioned the opening of a new position. Um, there's been a lot of talk about in the news about administrative bloat, and I wonder if you have concerns when you're adding these new positions to address very specific concerns, if there's ever a cost of adding new positions and having more administrators. Well, you know, I, I would say that um, the university is a remarkably complex uh, environment, and there are a number of aspects of Princeton that have grown, which you've indicated. It's grown... Uh, in the student population, it's growing in 
facilities. It's growing with respect to its ability to address uh, the regulatory environment. It, it's, it's growing in the complexity and the diversity of fulfilling its academic mission. And so as a result of this kind of growth of the university, it is not unusual to think about how can we ensure that we are supporting all people on campus in the best way. We could have a world where we have very limited expertise in people in leadership roles such that there are very few opportunities to, for leaders to interact with members of the community. That's an alternative kind of world. I'm inclined to think that the ways in which we've been investing in talent and leadership are in the best interest of ensuring that the university can fulfill its mission, which is uh, increasingly urgent in our contemporary era of higher education. And so I'm, I'm inclined to think that the, the idea of bloat is a negative way of interpreting how um, administration of a university is evolving with the times. Uh, we don't have the same leadership structures we had in the 20th century and in the 19th century. I don't even want to go back to the 18th century, right? The university has changed over time, and I think in proportionate ways the leadership structure changes too. And the demands that students have and the demands that faculty and staff have necessitate identifying the kinds of people who have the professional experience and expertise to address people where they're situated. So uh, not to say that I'm advocating a disproportionately uh, large growth of administration, but I think at appropriate levels, uh, attentive to the specific circumstances of our campus community, I think these are excellent investments to make for the future. Thank you so much.